the stuff that's a drag for me is that that HR stuff. So doing quarterly reviews, firing people and all that. That's not fun. We can't tell by your voice. Yeah. <laughs> two things. So it was very popular, which was good. Good news. The bad news, everyone wants their car washed at work. We said, how do we make people give us feedback? And it's kind of counterintuitive, but get to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and hang out with Jim Cramer on Mad Money and all those things that, that I always wanted to do. Go ahead and introduce yourself and you can just tell us where you're coming from and what you do today. Hey, my name is Scott Wingo. I am CEO and co-founder of Spiffy. Our URL is getspiffy.com. And I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've built four businesses. This is number four. And I am based out of Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And where's Research Triangle Park in case people don't know? Yep. So the three cities in the triangle are Raleigh, Chapel Hill, and Durham. So we're one of the tech centers of the United States here. Were you born and raised in the area? I'm actually from South Carolina. There's a little town called Aiken. Only people that golf or ride horses know about Aiken. It's golf. It's near Augusta, Georgia, where the Masters is. And then it's a big equestrian town. So a lot of people that are into horse riding go there. I do neither. So I just born there and uh, went to the University of South Carolina and then NC State here in Raleigh and really loved this area and kind of stuck here. You said you were with Spiffy. Could you tell us a little bit about what Spiffy is? We do on-demand car wash in detail. So you download an app or you go to our website and you can schedule a car wash. We're active in five markets. We're in Raleigh, Charlotte, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Dallas. What made you want to go ahead and start car washing company? Were you doing that beforehand because you said you're a serial entrepreneur? So the company I started before Spiffy is called Channel Advisor. We help e-commerce companies sell on eBay, Amazon, and places like that, brands and retailers. So I've been in e-commerce for 15 to 20 years. What I think is really interesting about the on-demand economy is we've seen products go digital with the evolution of e-commerce and Amazon and whatnot over the last 20 years. I think services are the next step. I think once you have that kind of Uber experience where you press a button on your phone and things happen in the real world, you get addicted to that. So I wanted to get involved in that space. And I was already in the car wash business on the side and it just seemed like a natural progression for us. Decided to test it, and it's uh, gone from testing to really scaling up pretty quickly. Take it back even further, if that's okay. Can you tell us about going to college and graduating? Did you just start up entrepreneurship from there? Is that when the serial entrepreneurship started? Yeah. So I got a master's, and I was looking at jobs, and I got an offer from Motorola and a startup. My dad was a startup guy, so it's kind of funny. He was kind of in the startup world before it was hip to be in a startup. I kind of said it was a little depressing interviewing at a big company because they kind of laid out my entire life for me, you know, and I was 22 and they're kind of like, here's what the next 50 years of your life looks like. And for them, that was a selling point for me. It was kind of depressing. So I went and joined a startup in Connecticut and I'm from here in the South. And I really spent three years there, realized I really like startups and that was a good way to experience the startup lifestyle without taking any, you know, the real risk myself. But I realized I'm not great at cold weather. So moved back here to the triangle and started my first business in 1995. Okay. So those first couple of years, you're up north. And then when you came back, did you save up money from your old job to start up your new company? And can you tell us about that company? So I and two other buddies started, it was called Stingray Software. It was really an investment in sweat equity. To be honest with you, we put like 5K in, which for us was all our savings. So 15K seed money, if you will, using modern terminology. So put our product out there and it was well received and we kept iterating and we, we got it up to about a 12 million run rate. So a million dollars a month in revenue and, and quite profitable. 
But growth started to slow down because I think we actually had saturated this little pool of folks we were selling into. We ultimately ended up selling it to a public company, kind of convincing them that it was something that they could sell. We didn't do anything internationally, for example. So we convinced them they could double the revenue just by selling it internationally, which which they subsequently did. So it was a great first company to start. Didn't have a lot of the pressures of venture capital and debt and all those kinds of things. How do you go about trying to find someone to buy the company? In my experience, a lot of these things come out of partnerships. So we were actually talking to the company that acquired us. We approached them and said, hey, you guys have all these salespeople in Europe. We get a lot of demand from Europe, but we can't really sell there because we can't support it. You know, what if you guys sold our software in Europe? And as we got to know the management team, it just kind of worked out where they said, we could do that, but it's not really what we're built for. We'd rather get all the revenue than share some with you and we'd rather own the entire thing. So then there was a couple back and forths and whatnot. And then ultimately we got to a point where we thought the valuation made a lot of sense and sold the business to them. Could you tell us specifically what the software did? Yeah, so there's, it's pretty geeky. So there's this developer software that Microsoft has. Most people know Visual Basic. Its big brother is called Visual C++. So we sold add-ons to that system. So Visual C++ out of the box lets you build applications that do certain things, but not others. Everyone wants their application to look like Microsoft Office, which is the fanciest of graphical user interfaces. But out of the box, you can kind of do Notepad. So our software helped them bridge that gap. So we had a lot of the fancy little widgets for pop-down menus and things. We had a spreadsheet kind of module a lot of these kinds of things that would enable the developer to save a ton of time and make their application look more like that Microsoft Office level than kind of Notepad. So in case you are wondering right now, we were switching mics because I kept hearing a clicking noise and we kept trying to get rid of it. So we went ahead and switched mics for Scott here. It's called Stingray Software? Yep. <clears throat> okay. And so once you sold that, were you a millionaire there? I was, yeah. I had a goal of trying to be a millionaire by the time I was 30 and I achieved it by like five days. It was tight, but I got her done. How'd that feel? It was kind of anticlimactic, I guess you would say. <laughs> yeah. So I think in my 20s, it was kind of chasing that. I remember reading Fortune 500 and realizing the people on there, none of them had day jobs. <laughs> they were owners. So, so chasing that in my 20s and then kind of getting there, I think what I realized I love is building something out of nothing and solving customer problems. And that's, that's really kind of more of what's motivated me since then. And then close that company down. You had a, two partners, how many partners? Two partners. Yep. Okay. Did y'all just go your separate ways from there? No, we, we both so part of when you sell company. The thing they don't tell you is that they have to stay on for a year or two. The company doesn't want to just acquire the assets they want the people to. So we put in a year there and then two of us started the next company and one of us he kind of tapped out and had said, you know, really, I want to just move to another area and do my own thing. So myself and another partner started the next company, which was called Auction River. And this is in 99 when the internet bubble was really pretty well formed. It was kind of crazy. So it was a six-month journey where we built the product, didn't make any revenue, raised capital. We raised like $3 million in venture capital and then sold it for a pretty good multiple over 10x that to a public company during the internet kind of crazy days. Wow. And you sold it before everything crashed? We did. Yeah. Yeah. We we sold it to, there was a public company called goto.com, G-O-T-O, and they changed their name to Overture. And then ultimately now they're part of Yahoo. But back then they were primarily called Overture during this part of the story. And did you feel lucky at that point, be able to sell it? I did. It felt like we really didn't get a chance to build what we wanted to build though. But kind of the nice part of that is we did ride out that dot-com turmoil that happened. And then we stayed there for a year and built more of what we were trying to build that ultimately became my next company. 
So we, we had built software for people to search auction sites, but then we also were going to build software for sellers to list and advertise using our front end. One day I was looking at who was using that software. It was quite popular uh, when we were part of Overture. We sold the software to mostly eBay sellers. One day I noticed Sun Microsystems had sold a couple million dollars worth of servers on eBay. This is when, that doesn't sound strange today, but this is when eBay was like 90% Beanie Babies and maybe did, you know, like 50 million a month. So it was quite a weird data point to see computers sell on eBay at that scale. And as we talked to these guys, they loved the software. They just wanted to do a lot more. And we ultimately, at the same time, Overture was starting to compete with Google. And they said, hey, we're going to shut you guys down probably so we can focus on these guys called Google. We said, well, what if we bought back this one little piece we had sold to you and took it off your hands? And we ultimately were able to do that. So we, we spun out as a company called Channel Advisor in 2001 with this idea of helping people sell across the internet on primarily starting at eBay, but then search engines, and then ultimately Amazon came on the scene. And before we talk about, I guess, channel advisors more, can you tell us about kind of going from entrepreneurship, it seems like, to selling your company and having to work at a big company and then doing it again? Is that basically what happened? <laughs> yeah. When you build a company, it's almost like somewhere between a pet and a child. It's like, <laughs> you know, you, you've, put, you've put a fair amount of effort into this. It is very hard Every company that spends money on the front end, they tell you that they really value your input and they want to keep you separate. And then on the back end, they just can't resist because they own it, right? It's the shiny new toy. So the go-to experience was actually a lot better because they were they were just so busy with their own thing. We were left pretty much intact, but the the selling the first company was pretty painful. You kind know, of watching them do all the classic things wrong, like everyone in the building reported to someone at corporate, and there was no communication and. It was just kind of a total train wreck of having sold your company. By the time we started ChannelVisor, I think we were ready. So my partner, I, again, same partners, we were really focused on, let's find something. And we had the ability now to really hunker down and find something big and work at it for a long time. And again, before we talk more about ChannelVisor, looking back, is there one or two things that you can pull out that you learned that you think other entrepreneurs should know who are listening? Yeah. So I was, let's see, I was 22 when I was... 20, probably 25 when I started Stingray and 26 when I started Auction Rover. Part of the success is just like not knowing what you don't know and just kind of like bullheadedly charging into things. I meet a lot of folks that are considering entrepreneurship and they don't start because they feel like everything needs to be, you know, there needs to be this 80 page detailed business plan. That's actually not what you need. In, in my experience, just this, the ability to just get in there and start executing, getting customers, make them happy and just chug away at that. That's way better than an 80 page business plan. Not being timid, you know, so I'd just pick up the phone and call Meg Whitman at eBay and see if she'd call me back. And you'd be surprised most of the time these folks will call you, you know, especially if you're, if you're professional and you're not doing something crazy and wacky, you can actually get pretty far up the corporate ladder at these potential customers. So those are all things I wouldn't have believed unless I kind of lived it. And then let's live your channel advisor life, how this strung out. You were still, again, at go-to auctions, but were you spending like part of your time at channel advisor? Yes. Yeah, so, no, it was a pretty clean cut. So in July of 01, we did a deal where we effectively shut down the what we had sold to Overture, but bought back the back end, essentially pieces of the back end and some of the employees. It was kind of a management buyout, spin out kind of a thing, kind of a weird way to start a business. 
but we we felt like we were onto something and that there would be some value there. And then one of my goals has always been to do an IPO. What I learned from Stingray is the market we went after was just too small. You know, it kind of, if you looked globally, it was maybe a $20 million opportunity from a revenue perspective. And you just, you're not going to go public on something like that or you need to be in the hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollar kind of a space. And then at Auction Rover, we'd sold that so fast. We never really kind of got much going there. <laughs> it was just kind of so fast, but that was okay because it was such a crazy time. It was a good to take some money off the table. So we felt like the timing was right with the early days of e-commerce that we kind of said, you know, if 10% of things are bought online, that's a big number. There's a lot we can chew away at there to solve people's problems and growth. So with Channel Advisor, we even picked a name that was kind of generic-ish. A lot of our competitors, for example, had the word auction in their name, like auction works and stuff. We purposely avoided that because we felt like it would be bigger if we just didn't get anchored to one way of buying things. That was the goal with Channel Advisor was like, let's really figure out this e-commerce thing and help businesses with e-commerce see what kind of scale we can achieve. What type of scale did you achieve? Let's just start kind of day one and how you saw this company through for what, 13 years, 14 years or so? Yeah. Yeah. About 15 years. The highlights are, you know, we started with 10 people in kind of July of 01. A lot of things went our way. And, and that was kind of because we'd bet on e-commerce. E-commerce obviously has, is quite popular. One of the things that went our way is eBay was a great partner and they were an investor. So that was awesome. And then Google actually helped us out a lot. And then Amazon coming along and opening up their marketplace was a huge win for us. We bet real heavily on that and kind of like the 2008 timeframe and, uh, Amazon's largest partner. That was obviously, a, in hindsight, a pretty smart thing to do. We, we got very lucky there betting on Amazon. At the time, people always forget this, but everyone thought Amazon was stupid and would be the next. Selling books online, there's no margin in that. And it's like pets.com and Amazon has proven them all wrong on that stuff. But the, the bullets are we raised, over the years, we raised 90 million in venture capital. We scaled up the business. It's a software SaaS business, which means it's subscription software hosted by us. And we have like 3,000 customers. And now we went public in 2013 on the New York Stock Exchange, still publicly traded. I'm still exec chairman there, but spend most of my time at Spiffy now. You're trying to make it as simple as possible. What would Channel Advisor do for them as you grew through those years? Was it still the same role or what did it switch or what was going on? Yeah, we always kind of, we still do exactly the same thing we did in 2001. We just expanded what we do. So what we do at Channel Advisor is it helps to say what we don't do. We don't run the cart for people. So there's tons of companies that have e-commerce carts. But what you may not realize is a lot of the transactions happen outside of the normal dot-coms at marketplaces and other channels like Google. So we help retailers and brands, for example, like Nike and Under Armour and those types of companies are customers, but so are like Macy's and retailers. We help them sell off of their website. So we help them sell on eBay, Amazon. We support 100 marketplaces, even internationally, like Alibaba, Mercado Libre in Brazil. Then we also help them with Google AdWords. So they feed their inventory data to us and we help publish it across the internet. When you see that product on Google or eBay or Amazon, we're kind of the intel inside behind that, the power behind that, helping the brands get that product out there at the right place at the right time and understand how much it's costing and optimize it. What was your day-to-day -day like there? Like you personally, your role? 
depends on the phase of the company. You know, there's kind of, and I usually use it, headcount is kind of a synonymous with revenue in most software companies. So kind of 50 and under, you're a jack of trades. You're really trying to, whenever you're venture backed, you spend a fair portion of your time raising capital and making sure your board and shareholders are happy. So that's a wedge of the pie, probably 20 to 25%. A lot of it is strategy and talking to customers and kind of on the product side at that phase. And then kind of 50 to 100 is really scaling. And then 100, we're at 700 people now. You know, 100 to 200 is it's just like this whole other, you're starting to spend more time fundraising, a lot of your time recruiting and retaining talent, finding an executive that like a CFO, chief revenue officer, and you really start to have to expand your team. And finding those people is really, really important, but also very hard. So you go, as you scale up, you're really kind of becoming more of that setting the vision and hiring a great team and trying to get out of their way. And then I've always felt it's really important in the fast moving market like e-commerce to be a thought leader. That has a lot of PR wins. So I've always spent a fair amount of time on thought leadership, of being out there and being an evangelist for even bigger than the company, making sure everyone kind of knows what we're thinking around trends and that kind of stuff. Because when you're a thought leader, it just makes it that much easier for people to buy your software. Did you say motivated this whole time? That long of a time like at a company and the role that you, I guess you were becoming, I don't know if it becomes more boring because if you're an entrepreneur in the beginning, kind of like starting something versus moving to more of a management role, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I've always, so one of the things I did, and I have a lot of mentors, and one of my mentors was, the stuff that's a drag for me is that that HR stuff. So doing quarterly reviews, firing people and all that is real. That's not fun. We can't tell by your voice. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a mentor and he said, you know, what you need is a COO that someone that can be along for the ride and loves doing that stuff. So I was fortunate that I found a, a great person to be a COO for me and ultimately president and now a CEO. I was probably five or six years ahead of his career, and he really had an interest in scaling up something pretty big and loved the making sure that the trains run on time and that all the reviews were in and all that stuff. And that carved all that off. And I got to focus on the stuff I love, which is like marketing and product and customers and really making sure we had product market fit. We were listening to our customers and putting that back in the product. So that kept me going as we scaled up to those levels is having a COO that could kind of throw himself on the grenade of all the stuff I didn't like. Oh, yeah, that sounds like that worked out perfectly. You did just bring up mentors. So did that help you grow? How did you come up with the idea to get an actual mentor? Because I think some people forget about maybe you, the person listening needs a mentor right now and they just forget about it, right? Because they've, they've been out of school so long or just don't know where to turn. Could you tell us what the mentor did for you and if you had any other experiences with mentors? I was fortunate. Most of mine have come because they were at NC State. We have a big entrepreneurship program, you know, a lot of connective tissue there to previous graduates. So there was, there was this class of folks that had graduated five to 10 years ahead of me that had, were on their second or third company. When I needed mentorship, it was pretty easy for me to reach out to them because I'd see them talk at events and things like that. So that was a nice, you know, it wasn't this formal mentoring, but it was the ability to have a relationship there to talk to. There was a guy, Richard Holcomb, for example, and he had sold two companies. So when we started thinking about selling Stingray, all these people were coming out of the woodwork. I'll help you sell your company for 5% and all this stuff. He was really helpful to bounce ideas. You had a lot of friends at that point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was very helpful to kind of bounce ideas off of them. And gosh, we needed a different kind of lawyer. And who did they know? There's just like a million things that, that someone like that has already got the scar tissue and can save you a ton of time. Looking back at Channel Advisor, what was the hardest? Were there any harder moments as far as just raising it? Because it sounds all like everything went perfect so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The PR story is always different. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Probably the hardest time is the recession of 08, 09. We were burning. Capital had been so cheap that it wasn't a huge concern. Then suddenly the world changed overnight. You know, we had to do some layoffs and reduce staff and get profitable as quickly as possible. When you have this three-year plan and then suddenly a curveball gets thrown at you, that's no fun. You know, one of the most grueling things is when you do have to lay off folks, you feel like a failure as an entrepreneur, you feel terrible, you feel like they're going to starve and die and all this kind of stuff. The reality is most people find a new gig within like five days. So for the kind of things we do at software companies, you're almost at like negative unemployment. The rational part of your brain tells you that, but then when you're in the room and that person is, you know, you're, you're having to let them go because you didn't secure funding or you didn't see something coming, that's the ugly underbelly of being an entrepreneur. Did it affect you personally at all? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, it makes you say, I never want to have to do that again. So to the extent that going forward, you're a little more conservative and a little more watching out for those curveballs. Absolutely. I guess eventually seven or eight years after that, you kept growing and then you wanted to go ahead and wash cars. Is that how it worked? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the, <laughs> you got laid off and they had to go wash cars. Yeah. 10 years later, the recession was probably one of the best things that happened to us because it wiped out all of our competitors and they couldn't get funding. So we, as a survivor, we just mopped up the market and then Amazon came back really strong. And because we had bet on them, it worked out really well. So ultimately we were able to go public in 2013. That was a lot of fun. I got to check that off my bucket list of taking a company public and get to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and hang out with Jim Cramer on Mad Money and all those things that, that I always wanted to do. But then like after a year and a half, I was kind of like, man, running a public company is a drag because that entire wedge of time where I was spending time with customers and products now went to shareholders and potential shareholders and really kind of public company stuff. It worked out well that my president and COO really wanted to be CEO at some point. And I kind of said, you know, hey, this is a great time. Simultaneously, this spiffy experiment that I've been doing in parallel was really taking off. So it felt like a good time to say, let me refresh my batteries, go do something really early. It's time for someone else to run ChannelVisor that has got more energy than I do right now for tackling that. Well, can you talk about that more? Were you just on, you're doing it part-time on the side when you're trying to do the car wash thing or, or what? So I was CEO of ChannelVisor and then I had a partner that was running Spiffy. I was really just kind of maybe meeting once a month. The Spiffy experiment was really run by my partner, Carl. He actually operated the physical car washes. It worked out great that I was able to kind of dabble in this on-demand world while running ChannelVisor. I essentially flipped those things in 2016. Can you talk about starting Spiffy then? I mean, just a little bit more in detail of how many people did you start off with then? What were some of the challenges you had starting off? My favorite approaches to this stuff is to, it's impossible to predict things. This is the problem with the 80 page business plan. Usually day five, you throw it out the window because the world's changed or it doesn't work the way you think it does. If you kind of get your head around that, then you take some of these concepts from agile software and lean manufacturing. There's a really good book called Lean Startups. And I've been doing it this way for a while. I just didn't know to call it that. So with Spiffy, what we did is in 2014, we said, Let, let's just run a test and see what happens. And we literally invested like $20,000 and we, we had already had two vans from our car wash. We got two more vans, hired some employees and put an app out there, hired a consultant to develop an app. And the app was really good, but there was no backend. So you would essentially schedule a car wash and an email would be sent out to us and, or to the team. And they would figure out how to make that happen. In the lean startup world, that's called a minimum viable product. The consumer feels like they're getting a full experience, but you're kind of faking it on the back end. We just put that out there to see what would happen as an experiment. Learned two things. So it was very popular. 
which was good, good news. The bad news kind of with a little asterisk is everyone wants their car washed at work. And that was a big surprise because at a physical car wash, it's weekends and evenings, not during the week. When you give people a choice with an app, they will choose to have their car washed at work, we've discovered. And then the bad news around that is most office parks do not allow you to wash vehicles at those office parks. So it felt like game over. It felt like the experiment we learned a lot, but it was kind of a failure because everyone wants their car washed at work. You're not allowed to wash anyone's car at work. Ultimately, we got through that. We kind of, the common objections, we figured out what they were and got through them and turned it into lemonade, essentially. What were the common injections and how'd you get through it? So mobile detailers in general, the existing industry has a really bad kind of connotations. So everyone would say, we don't allow mobile detailers because number one, they're very sketchy. Number two, their vans are sketchy. We're class A office space. You know, we can't have sketchy people driving around in sketchy vans. We kept hearing them called child abduction vans. They don't have insurance. And then probably the biggest one that was hard for us to overcome was environmental concerns. So all of today's office parks are LEED certified or Energy Star. And a lot of that is like how you deal with runoff and water and chemicals. So these detailers would come in, they would do a real quick service, and they'd leave a chemical spill in the parking lot. And that made these property managers angry and pretty nervous because they were really worried someday the EPA would come and say, hey, there's chemicals coming off your parking lot. We're going to fine you $200,000. So we said, all right, we can solve this. So we, we employ all of our technicians. We train them. They wear uniforms. And we came up you know, with a whole brand that it's a brand. None of these guys really have a brand. So there's a brand. We stand behind what we do. Our fans don't look like they've got children. We solved the insurance thing pretty easily. And then with the environmental side, we ultimately decided we use very little water, but we still have to use water to get a really good outcome for the vehicle. And what we do is we wash every car on a mat and that acts like a little bathtub for the car and it captures all the water and we suck all the water back onto the van and then take it to a central area where we reclaim the water. Once we did that, we got rid of all those objections and it was off to the races. Yeah, because we talked about in the pre-interview that I come from the commercial real estate background and you're talking about how you started talking to those people to figure it out. And yeah, the problem is when you ever go to sell the property, if, if there is any environmental issue, because they need environmental inspection every time they're going to close or refinance, mm -hmm. can't get the deal closed. And then the owner's screwed and then they have to pay a couple hundred K or whatever to get this fixed. And that's why you don't see a lot of laundry places actually at retail and retail centers anymore. They don't do the actual cleaning in there in the parking lot because people out back, you should just go pour it behind the shopping center. But when they did that 10 years later, when the new environmental regulations would come in, now those property owners are screwed. So I do understand, I guess, from their point of view, that was important for you to figure those things out, those hurdles. So did you just talk to those property managers and made a checklist and did all those things? They said it was okay. Or did you have to convince them a little bit more? A lot of this stuff for the listeners is a numbers game. So, you know, we pitched 10 or 20 and they all said no. And then we came and pitched them again. And two said, let me think about it. And then one said, let's do a test. They tend to be in any audience of 10 or 20 people. There's going to be some people that are, are really kind of thinking about some of these things innovatively. These were folks that they had a lot of high tech tenants that were pushing them for more amenities. And we've learned now to talk about it this way. At that point, we had no clue. You know, we're in this amenity war or as an employer employee, you would think of them as these kind of perks or benefits. And a lot of this comes out of the Googles of the world. If you look at these companies that are constantly winning the best places to work awards, it's because they, they just pile on all these benefits to their employees. Well, every time one of these benefits comes up, it costs the commercial real estate provider money. Like if you want a sand volleyball court or a cool picnic table or a, anything, it comes out of their pocket. So they're excited to work with us and try it because what they told us is you guys have an amenity that we can offer that we don't have to pay for. And 
everything else we have to pay for. So if you can solve these problems, we're still pretty interested because we want to use this to go draw more tech talent into our buildings. That's our pitch now is it's a zero cost amenity to the property manager. Early on, we had these guys that were willing to try it. And sure enough, you know, at these businesses, we get, we'll wash 30, 40, 50 cars a day and the consumers love it. They love the convenience and the fact it's all app-based. They don't have to have cash. There's, it doesn't interrupt their day. We've taken all the friction out of washing their car. The commercial real estate folks have learned to love it because it's an amenity that's very easy for them to offer. No, that's perfect. And that's a great way to spin it. I mean, I, I haven't even thought about that, but I guess, yeah, it's always is a numbers game. So I'm glad you brought up that too. Whenever I'm doing something, I try it out, you know, like you said, maybe on 10 or 20, and then you try to refine whatever your pitch is. And it sounds like you've got it down pretty well. One quick question, with the people who have the keys, do they just leave it at the front desk or something when y'all go get them? Yeah, that used to be the model and we still do that. But what we did is we, when we got up to like 10 services a day, the front desk people are like, you know, I just feel like Spiffy is my full time. So we invented a system. It's kind of like an Amazon locker for your keys. We call it the key exchange system. It's a box that you drop your keys in there in an envelope and then we come get them out and there's return boxes. You get this notifications in the app that say, we've got your keys. We started the service. We're done with the service. Your service is done and your keys are in box number eight and your secure code is 8512 or whatever it ends up being. So what's nice is we don't call you. You don't have to see us. We're kind of like magic elves washing your car. We even save your parking spot. But you do get that transparency through the app of what's going on. We even show you before and after pictures and whatnot. So you can be going about your day and still monitor what's going on with your vehicle. Yeah, that's amazing, the technology and kind of how y'all implement it. I hadn't heard about that, any of this before. I mean, do y'all have competition, these types of car washes? Most of our competition is really kind of the old school mobile detailer, kind of, you know, individuals that kind of bop around town. Every town has five or six of them, but they don't have, you know, they, they generally are pretty good on the operation side of like making your car clean. They're really bad on the front end, the marketing side. So they're usually cash businesses, usually the menu is super confusing. It's pretty inconvenient because they're going to call you six times and say, you know, hey, I found a scratch. You want me to do something about it and all that kind of stuff. We do have a couple of regional competitors. There's a company. So we're what I would call full stack in that we employ our technicians. Most of our competition is trying to build an Uber model, which is more of a marketplace where they're, they're using contractors or 1099 existing detailers. And they're just a front end for that. So there's one in Los Angeles and one in Miami. They haven't scaled outside of those cities at this point. Can you tell us about the pros and cons of the way you do it versus the way they do it? Yeah, I've kind of had a front row seat at watching Amazon build their business. And what Amazon does is, in my mind, the secret of their success is they always start at the customer and work back. And what I think these other companies do is they say, well, I'd have higher margins if I don't have to employ anyone, which is true. But if you have a terrible customer experience, like why do you need to exist? So we, we kind of said, let's start with the customer does the customer want some random person to kind of just show up that is not associated with our brand? And essentially, you know, especially with these property managers, but as I mentioned, they're pretty sensitive to this, right? So if we go and we solve this whole horse and pony about us being different, and then we just like send some rando there, a dirty truck, that's not going to really work. So I think that's what's really different about how we think about it is we always start at the customer and work our way back. The customer wants zero friction and a car that's perfectly clean. So how can we deliver that? And we just feel like we have to employ people and train them and put them in uniforms and, and that kind of thing to have that Starbucks barista style experience and consistency. What do you think you're world-class at as far as like business-wise? So the cartoonist, Scott Adams, he has this kind of, he kind of talks about everyone has their own little skill stack and 
when you look at certain things, like I'm not the best sales guy, I'm not the best coder, but I, I think being technical and being an entrepreneur and being not terrible at selling and raising capital is that has been a, an angle that's pretty good for me because it, it helps me get to that path of solving these problems pretty quickly and to be able to work with an engineering team and build great products. So that's kind of what I think my skill set is. And looking back at that skill set, is there any other tips that you might want to let the listeners know about? One thing I've learned as an engineer, you're kind of an introvert. It's easy just to sit in a cube all day and kind of type on your computer. But where's the challenge in that? You know, so I find kind of having to step outside of that introversion and loving just sitting there in front of the computer and talking to customers and all, it gets you out of your comfort zone and you end up actually liking it. For example, public speaking used to just scare the crap out of me. And now I can just step up in front of 2000 people and give a talk without really, there's still a little part of you that's scared every time you do that, but it's smaller and smaller every time. And, you know, it actually starts to be kind of fun. You can step out of that and really try to share something interesting with that audience. And so I always have a soft spot for engineers that want to be entrepreneurs because I think they probably overestimate how hard it is. These are folks that have taken like differential equations and they're worried about, you know, the accounting part of starting a business. It's like, you know, plus or minus. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> that's why I did business math. What it plus minus and what division, a little bit of multiplication. That's about it. And so, yeah, yeah. If you can do those, you can find a way to run your own business. So what's been the hardest challenge, I guess, other than get spiffy, other than I guess the initial hurdle, it sounded like. Yeah. So one of the things I want to do is my second company auction over was a consumer oriented play, but we just really didn't get far enough to get that many consumers, to be honest with you. So then most of my other businesses have been B2B or B2B2C. So really wanted to build a consumer business and kind of see what that's like. And that's hard. You know, right now we do something like 3000 services a month, making sure all those are five-star quality. That is hard. When customers are upset, they're really upset. We're touching their either their most valuable asset or their second most valuable asset. So there's a lot of responsibility that goes along with that and making sure we do a good job. That's the hardest part is just grinding that out every day. Is it worth it? Because I hear that all the time too. If you're B2B, is just so much easier as far as the people that you're dealing with. It's just number game versus, I guess, being overly sensitive about something you own, right? As a B2C player. Yeah. I don't know if it's worth it yet. I'll let you know. I think you know, uh, of all the <laughs> yeah. things I've started, this one has the largest potential addressable market. You know, it's like every car in the United States needs to be washed or in the world. So I'll let you know in 10 years if it's worth it. Yeah. Well, then well, what do you see for the other yeah, future of Get Spiffy then? Yeah. So we're five markets. We want to, Amazon is kind of interesting. They they have this offering prime now in 40 markets and they can get to pretty good size of the US population by being in, in 40 strategic markets. So I think we're just going to follow that roadmap and try to get into as many of those markets as we can. We're always looking to add new services. We added oil chains this year and that's been popular. I'm a really big believer on gathering all this customer feedback. They will show you the way to add more offerings and things. So we're constantly, customers are asking for all kinds of things and we're working as hard as we can to add them. Is there any specific way you're keeping track of that? Or is it just the people who are there washing the cars or just bringing them up to you? Yeah, probably the smartest thing we did in that MVP that I mentioned, and we still do it today, is we said, how do we make people give us feedback? And it's kind of counterintuitive, but people can't pay us unless they leave feedback. <laughs> now, if they're busy, like we will actually charge their card after 48 hours if they don't leave us feedback. But you know, the user experience is you really have to give us feedback. 90% of our customers leave us feedback. So we have this fire hose of feedback that comes back at us. And, and that has been super valuable to make sure we're consistently solving problems and gathering that feedback of what we can do better. 
Are they just open-ended questions or is it yes, no? There's a five-star and then a, a, an open-ended kind of a thing. Okay. And that's so they, they're supposed to do that and then it checks out. Is there anything specific that you tell another entrepreneur what they should have as far as those questions? Is it just like, are you satisfied? Yes, no. Or is there anything that we maybe the regular entrepreneur wouldn't think of that y'all came up with that works? I kind of defer to, again, I always think these big companies have spent millions of dollars on this and we'll never do that. So the standard in the world of e-commerce is net promoter score. So the five-star system kind of copies that in a kind of app-friendly way with stars. And then you have you always leave a, an open box and, and that's called the verbatim. So you have a ranking and a verbatim and you don't make the verbatim required, but the ranking you know, needs to be required. So like 90% of the people fill out the stars and another 10% will leave verbatims. But that verbatim stuff is really super helpful. And it's something that as a management team, you can capture and just skim through very quickly. It's very consumable. So it's not like this flood. And with modern tools like Slack, you know, you can just create a Slack channel that just like spits that stuff out. So there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do with that. What's your day-to-day -day like now at like Spiffy? Is this your full-time job now or do you have any other side things you work on? Yeah, so I do a little bit of angel investing. I'm on a couple boards and then I'm on the channel advisor board. So I'd say I spend 95% of my time at Spiffy. Probably the biggest chunk of time is the strategy of what we're doing next. We're moving really fast. We're growing at like 150% year over year. So spending a lot of time of how do we scale the business? What's the next city? What's the next service? Got to always keep your investors happy. We raised a Series A of five million uh, last last year, so always either making sure investors are happy or are continuing to fundraise. So spend a fair amount of time on that. And then uh, I'm fortunate. My partner here, he runs the operations and the sales piece, and I run the marketing and the product side. And that's a I like that that split, just kind of like a channel advisor. So again, have a COO, president, partner that is really good at running a lot of the stuff that is not my core competency. And yeah, we originally got connected through a PR person. How do you know when it's time to hire a PR agency for you? In a B2B company, I think you can actually do your own PR. You know, I talked about that being a leader in industry and stuff. That's the best PR and, and people will kind of come to you. You don't really need a PR person as it were. And the consumer thing, I think you really need to, around when you get funding, you kind of really need to elevate your presence. And that's a good time to have a, a PR firm or a, a dedicated person internally. Do you have any suggestions on if someone wanted to hire one, when's the time? Have you gotten any output from it? Yeah, it's been, you know, there, there's kind of a lot of schools of thought around PR. Where I end up is, you know, what you want to do is put content out there, then have people find it and come to you versus just kind of shouting about your product. PR agencies today, it's called inbound marketing. It's kind of the slang for that. There's a set of agencies that are really focused on that. I feel like I get more bang for the buck long-term from that. Another thing that's interesting is there are PR firms out there now that are more performance-based. So, so the traditional model is you would say, PR firm would be like, all right, you're going to get a quarter of Allison's time and she's, we're going to charge you 10K a month. She's going to help you write and issue press releases and deal with inbound inquiries. Well, then you have to come up with these reasons to issue press releases. and One more thing for you to do. <laughs> and you feel like you got to do a lot of it to, to kind of justify that 10 <laughs> Yeah, right. So more of these inbound marketing people are like, you know, we're going to help you write a bunch of content, push it out there and pitch it. And then when we get a hit, you pay us. I like that a lot more. They're harder to find. I call that more pay for performance slash inbound marketing. Well, it's it. Uh, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your time. Is there any last words of wisdom that you might have for someone who's listening or wanted to say thank you for doing the interview? No, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff. I would encourage listeners, the, the hardest part is getting started. So, you know, just kind of getting out there, talking to that first customer, putting out a prototype, just get started. 
my kids love Mary Poppins and there's kind of this whole thing of like, you know, started as half done and it's very true in the world of entrepreneurship. Well, thank you, Scott, for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. like this service slash tech interview, then you'll probably like these episodes too. Try episode 53 with Greg Roulette, where he talks about his failed career as a rapper that led to him starting his marketing company. Or episode 51 with Adam Robinson. There he talks about laying off his entire staff during the 2007 recession and being a half a million dollars in debt. Or try episode 42 with Justin Cook. He discusses how to buy an online business that's already up and running instead of starting one from scratch. As always, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Millionaire Interviews. Millionaire Interviews.